Second Kings chapter five is a passage I'll be reading from in just a little bit here. And as you guys are turning there to kind of familiarize you a little bit with what my team was doing on the last deployment I was involved in, we were out in Iraq and given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests on those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with this group called the ISOF. It's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so we figured the best way to do that is to not only train them on base, but actually go outside the wire and fight side by side with them. Uh, well, I guess you could say a whole deployment was going by pretty good because we've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes, making the world a better place. And we're coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And we weren't really sure if the ISOF was ready for us to pass that baton off to them. So we decided, hey, for this final operation, let's try and make it a sort of graduation operation. We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up. and We'll be there with them just in case things go bad. And so they start from scratch. What's the first thing they need? Well, they need some intel to operate on. So they find this source on the street, tells them about this guy that's a Iraqi policeman by day, but at night back home. As it turns out, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And so the ISOF comes up with this whole plan. Here's how we want to approach the house, get in, grab the guy, extract, and it all checks out, looks pretty good as they present it to us. But they had one complaint. They said, hey, listen, we feel, the ISOF, that we get shot at more than you SEALs do, and we think we figured out why. So we're kind of curious what they thought it was. So, all right, have at it. And they say, it's the color of your uniforms. And we're like, what? The color of our uniforms? Not the way we shoot, move, communicate, nothing to do with our tactics. You think it comes down to the mere color of a uniform that is on. And they're just convinced of this. And so they're saying, we got a request. We're wondering if you'd be willing for this final operation to maybe strip off the American colors off your vehicles, paint them up ice off, and take off your American colored uniforms. And, you know, we got a pile of uniforms you guys can put on. So, guys, get this straight. You want us to put your uniforms on to blend in with you to get shot at more with you. And they're like, yeah. It's like, fine. It's not about the uniforms, and I'll take home the souvenir. So we get their uniforms on. We paint up the vehicles just like theirs. And me, of all people, out of the guys in the platoon, you know, my dark skin start growing out a little facial hair. Then get on one of these Iraqi uniforms. I'm walking around on base, and my guys are looking at me strange and pointing at me. I'm like, what's up? They're like, hey, Williams, you're really starting to blend in with these guys over here now. <laughs> and so I was really embracing it. I'm standing there in the Humvee. I'm right behind the 50 carbon machine gun in that turret. And for those of you that might not know, uh, let's just say it's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. <laughs> I've got the night vision goggles on, just looking through this green little world, going through this mental inventory, thinking about all the things I know about this night firing off in my mind, starting off with that weapon, headspace and timed. That means it's ready to go. I know where this guy lives. I know the plan, how we're going to approach the house, get in, grab him, extract. But one unique thing I know that entered my mind that makes this operation different than every other operation, I couldn't help but to think about it when you know this is it. This is the final operation. It means just a matter of days from now. I'll be back in my hometown out in the ocean surfing. But here's what none of us really knew about that night was that we were actually being set up the entire time to get thrown in the absolute worst circumstances we've been in on this entire deployment, as we find ourselves getting set up on this ambush, and suddenly now we're engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly is the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, and do what we do best. You know, as SEALs, that led to the obvious conclusion, I'm alive before you on the platform this evening, uh, but I think it's also worth remembering, especially while it's fresh in our minds, with the 13 service members that gave their lives in Afghanistan, that our freedoms aren't free. 
We need to remember what are they paid for in, and unfortunately, the cost is the currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. And I think it's also worth remembering that there's a faith element to that as well, because Jesus himself paid for our eternal freedom with the currency of his blood up there at the cross. And so more on how that ambush played out maybe towards the end if we have time, uh, but I, I do want to get into God's word, most importantly, and then share with you a little bit of that road to becoming a seal. And so 2 Kings chapter 5, if you guys have it, I'm reading from the New King James Version, just starting in verse 1. This is a soldier about a story about a soldier uh, by the name of Naaman. And uh, we're going to see that Naaman, I mean, this guy sounds like had they had special forces or Navy SEALs, Delta, Ranger, whatever, back then he would have been one of them. And so it goes like this. It says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and they brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus is the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king says, Go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Quick translation, he's bringing along the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver, and some apparel. Obviously, he's prepared to pay this guy off, do whatever you got to do, fix me of my leprosy. Jump ahead to verse 9 where we find Naaman on his way, he's in route. And just so you know, this is enemy-occupied territory, 150-mile trip, horses and chariots, and he's finally starting to get there. Verse 9, Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious. And he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me, stand, call in the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana, the far part, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Let's pray real quick. Father, we just come before you asking, Lord, that your spirit would just be present and active here. Lord, that... In this place, we would be able to uh, just really clear our minds of just a lot of the, the clutter and debris of life, that we would grow closer to you, that those of you, those of the people that are here right now that, that maybe don't know you, Lord, that you would draw them in. And those that you do know, that uh, they would just come to know you even more, that you would pour into us, that you would use us to advance your kingdom, that we wouldn't lose sight about what it really is all about to be here on this earth, to know you and to make you known. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Relevance of this passage coming up shortly. Uh, but like I said, kind of the road to it and my road to becoming a, a SEAL. Fresh out of high school, attending a local community college, that saying is so true. If you aim at nothing, you will hit it. 
Unfortunately, that was my aim at that time. I didn't have any big plans. I'm just attending the local community college. All my peers are passing me by because I'm failing all my classes. It's my own fault. I'm not showing up. I'm not into it. I'm just ditching, hanging out with friends, going surfing. But now the end of the year is coming up. It's time to face the music. I remember pulling into that school parking lot, time to take these finals I didn't study for. And for whatever reason, it took that moment for it to just hit me in the face. This thought of just, wow, I'm turning out to be a loser. I mean, the kind of guy that no young man wants to be. And so I'm thinking, how do I turn this around? I don't want to live a wasted life. You know, when you're young, you do get told, hey, you could do anything you want to do. The sky's the limit, big word, potential gets thrown around. And that's all very true. But there does come a certain point in life where you got to kind of question, hey, what trajectory are you on right now? And so all these peers passing me by, I'm sitting there in my truck as it's just in idle, about to go to class. I don't stand a chance of passing this. It's not what I want to do. I'm thinking, how do I turn this around? So I'm brainstorming. And sometimes the greater the need, the greater the result. I think I come up with the perfect plan. I know how to turn this whole thing around. I'm going to go become an Alaskan crab fisherman. (laughs) I'm watching Deadliest Sketch. And so I'm thinking right there, some bragging rights in that job. I want to do something difficult. And then this other idea popped in my head. Wait, no, why can't I go join the military? And not just that. I want to be a part of the most elite. I want to go through that difficult, grueling military training I want to be a Navy SEAL. And so sitting there in this school parking lot, about to take finals that I don't stand a chance of passing, I make up my mind. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so I thought to myself, well, here's my first order of business. If I'm going to be a frogman, I don't need to go to class anymore. So I started my truck up and took off out of that school parking lot. Never took those tests. But of course, I got to let my dad know. Some bad news and good news as I present it to him. I let him know the bad of course, he's kind of face palming, like, oh, son, what's the, what's the good news? Well, I'm waiting for that. It's all right, Dad, I got a plan. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so here he is looking at me, and I can kind of put myself back in his shoes now. Here's your son that hasn't demonstrated the discipline it takes to make it to the local community college, and now he's informing you, but I got it, Dad. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so he's just trying to be that voice of reason. He's making sure I'm going into this eyes wide open. He's like, son, just so you know, joining the military is not like anything you've ever done in the past. This isn't playing ball or skateboarding. This isn't going to the local community college that when you decide you're over it, you could just stop. He says, if you join the military, maybe then you find out it's not for you. Or suppose you quit and don't make it through SEAL training. Just to be clear, just to be clear, you will still be in the military and you're probably going to pick up a job like chip and paint off some boat off the coast of Japan. Well, there's some truth to that. And for whatever reason, that was like the perfect motivational speech for me. I mean, I went out of there feeling invigorated. Like, yeah, I got this. And so I realized actions speak louder than words. And so I'm just doing all the preparation I can. The running, swimming, pull-ups and push-ups. Well, days go by. He invites me inside again one day. He says, all right, you really want to do this, huh? You want to be a SEAL? Yeah, Dad, I want to be a SEAL. He goes, great. Well, I set up a workout for you with the Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. And I'll never forget looking over at the computer thinking, my dad does not know any Navy SEALs. What is this? In an email, all it says is, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? (laughs) I'm like, play? Like, dad, let me get this straight. You met some guy off the internet, says he wants to play with me, and you're arranging this meeting right now? (laughs) He goes, oh, he's a SEAL, son. I'm like, you can't trust everything someone tells you on the internet, dad goes, no, this guy's a SEAL. I'm like, all right, I'll meet up with him. Well, as it turns out, there's more of a conversation that took place on a phone call prior to that email that I didn't know about. And I didn't find out about till months later. But I'll give you guys the backstory up front. So on this phone call, as it turns out, my dad's on with them. He says, hey, look, here's the deal. My son wants to be a Navy SEAL. 
But he has no idea what he's signing up for. He does not know what he's getting involved in. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to do me a really big favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son? And if I paid you some money, would you just crush him? Just (laughs) bury him. Like beat this desire of becoming a seal out of him. Well, the guy thought about it for a while. And then the reply came in the email. And so that's what can Chad come out and play tomorrow, Matt. So off I go. It's Oceanside, California, meeting up with a Navy SEAL in a beach parking lot. Well, this guy does look the part. He's pointing his finger at me. You, Chad? Uh, yes, sir. All right, Bubba. I was Bubba from that point forward. Get on over here. And so he's got me dropped down doing the, you know, the push-ups and calisthenics, sends me off on a run out into the wetlands. Only direction I'm given is basically go away from the ocean, down that dirt trail, out into the wetlands. 15 minutes into it, I'll be there with you. I'll take the lead. He had some gear he wanted to clean up back at the truck. And so I take off, I'm going. Well, 15 minutes into this trail, like I said, I don't know what the final destination is. I just have a direction. I'm looking around and I don't see this guy. And so I'm running a little bit more, looking back, not seeing him. And I start getting this idea in my head as I'm running along now. Like, hey, maybe, maybe I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't catch up on the run. And so I'm celebrating in my mind, looking back again, and I'll never forget. It is like a scene cut right out of Terminator 2, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Do you remember when that bad dude, the T-1000, like morphed into knife hands and chased down a moving vehicle? Well, that's what this Navy SEAL looks like coming down this trail for me, right? Just like knife hands, right? Nothing I could do to keep that distance. He closes right in on me like a canine, and I never saw what was coming next because I think we're just running here. No. Now that we're out in the middle of nowhere, nobody around, that's where I'm greeted by his fist just going right into my stomach. And he's knocking the wind out of me. I'm flattened out on the ground, pooping dirt up all around me. And you got to put yourself in my shoes for a moment here. Remember, at the time, the only intel I had was this. Some guy... My dad bit off the internet. Now he's assaulting me in the wetlands. I'm thinking, child predator, like this is happening. And so now he's jumping on top of me. It doesn't stop there. He's doing the neon belly, screaming in my face, ragdolling me. I still have that sound. I just the threads of my shirt ripping as he's throwing me around, spit flying out, hitting me in the face. And I'm just, I'm trying to survive. But then these words come through. He says, you want to be a Navy SEAL? You better stay three paces behind me. And he gets up and turns and just begins to take off. And for whatever reason, that moment right there, I'll just say that was the moment that totally changed my life because I realized this is it. This is for real. Like this isn't some child predator. Like this guy's a seal. And it's not later on in seal training that I'm going to be called upon. It is right here, right now. I have to have that attitude of die before you quit. So I got this wind knocked out of me after running as fast as I could. I mean, that's a singular experience I've never had again. But I remember just thinking to myself, if I quit right now, I'll forever be a quitter. I knew the way I respond right here is going to affect the trajectory of the rest of my life. I can't live with it if I quit. And so I get up and I just affirm that attitude. Just die before you quit. Well, I'm going after this guy now. And I'm doing everything I can. All the strange noises coming out as I'm running after this guy, trying to stay there with him. I've never suffered like that. Even after all of SEAL training, looking back, I'll say I never went through a more difficult singular workout. I should call it a beatdown session than this encounter with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvinston. But... Finally, at a point, he ends it. And so he's just circled up. He's pacing back and forth. I don't know what's going on inside of that guy's head. He looks like one of these cage fighters just waiting for the referee to say the words, let's get it on. And I'm thinking, I don't want to project to him that I'm willing or wanting to fight him at all. And so I'm thinking, all right, no direct eye contact. Just, you know, don't set this guy off. Just use your peripherals, dude. Don't look him in the eyes. And so I got him in the peripherals, right? And he breaks this really awkward tension by pointing at me for a second time that day. And he says, hey, if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? And I just told him what came from the heart. 
I said, Scott, I'll die before I quit. Well, he just completely changes his demeanor. Big smile on his face. He goes, great. Hey, you want to meet up again in front of the workout tomorrow? And now I'm kind of thinking, are we going to address the flashback this guy had on the trail? Because he kind of snapped on me back there. But then I thought, don't bring it up because you might trigger that again. And so I'm just like, yeah, okay. And so thankfully, from that point forward, it was no longer a beatdown session like that. He ended up getting on the phone, telling my pops, like, look, I know what you want me to do. I gave it more than a go. Uh, but I think your son might have what it takes to make it. I'd like to start meeting up with them. So from that point forward, I began to meet up with them, and it, it wasn't this beatdown. It was more of a building up. And I moved on in life eventually with them from being Bubba to eventually I became Junior. You know, he really took me under his wing. He's mentoring me. And Scott, I got to say, is this extraordinary Navy SEAL. Holds all kinds of records. I'll just kind of go through some of the records real quick. Youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training. He completed it by 17 years old. That is only possible because of the upbringing that he had. He grew up in a lot of foster homes, so the military took him early. He's a world champion panathlete. He's the fastest Navy SEAL in the SEAL training obstacle course. He's the only man to beat the beast at the, at the program at the time called Man vs. Beast, where they put wild animals against athletes in a competition of strength or speed. Human always looks like a fool. Beast always wins. He, gets, he, he, he winds up getting a chimpanzee through an obstacle course. He pulls ahead of the monkey on monkey bars. All right, like this is who I'm getting trained by. And so you can imagine what it's like to get trained up by him. He got me ready. And so I sign up. I got a date. It's set. I'm shipping off now for boot camp. He takes an opportunity to put it to go overseas one last time. And so his turnaround, a little bit quicker than mine, he's leaving before I leave. So he's on the phone with me. He says, all right, Junior, about to go do this thing. He's referring to going off to Iraq. And he says, I just want you to know something, though, that I've never told anybody I've ever trained before. So I'm listening. And he says, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And so I don't need to tell you how much that meant to me right there. And he's reminding me the timeline now of, of how he's only going to be gone a couple months. That's about the same amount of time I'll be over at Great Lakes. And by the time I start SEAL training at Coronado, San Diego, he says, I'll be back. And he says, I'm going to be there. We're going to see you make it through. So we get off the phone, say our goodbyes. Now he's gone. And I got just a handful of days before I go. Well, I figure if I can't work out with my mentor in person, next best thing, I know the programs. And so I'm getting up one day, television on in the background, and as a, I don't know, it just, it captures my attention because it grabs me with Scott's face on TV. I'm like, what is Scott doing on TV? I didn't know he's going to be on TV again. So as I'm looking at this smiling image of him, not really tuned into the words in the background, that's when I see in the lower part of the screen Scott's birth date, and then followed by a dash. And it says March 31st, 2004. And before I could just process or translate the meaning of that, it switches from this smiling image of Scott to suddenly now I'm looking at graphic video footage. It starts off with a vehicle engulfed in flames in Fallujah, Iraq, which turned out to be the vehicle that he was in, along with three other Americans. As these insurgents had ambushed the vehicle that they were in, and they videotaped everything they did following that afterwards. Very similar to what groups like you know, ISIS do today. It's never enough to you know, behead somebody or you know, set a Jordanian pilot on fire. They want to videotape these sick things and send them around. And so now it's cutting to these different scenes. And it's one thing when it's American life. I can't even explain to you when it's like you identify and you know the guy that you see on TV. I idolize Scott. I mean, when I'm sitting passenger seat in the truck looking over at him and he's driving along, I'm like taking weird mental pictures like, man, I want to be like Scott one day. You know, look at those arms. And now I'm looking at those same arms. They're lifeless. As this angry Iraqi mob has sticks and rods and they begin to try and mutilate his body with these sticks. And then they find rope and wrap it around his legs. And I can't look away. 
and they're hooking him up to a vehicle and dragging him through the streets of Fallujah. And they take his body and string him upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge, set it on fire, and then they look into a camera with a message that they want every American to hear loud and clear. And I heard it. Over and over they chanted, Fallujah's the graveyard of Americans. Fallujah's the graveyard of Americans. I think pretty needs to say, I'll never have the words to describe what that moment and all the surrounding moments were like. That is one of those moments that changes you as a human being big time. And I'll just say one part of it was this. Whenever I thought about being a SEAL before, I never paid too much thought about what it would be like to kill somebody. I realized it's part of the job, but I always thought of just about how, like, you get to do some really rock star stuff. Shoot guns, blow things up, jump out of airplanes. I didn't play with the idea in my head too much of, like, taking human life. Now, I had a hunger for it. I mean, I wanted to jump through that TV screen without the training, get over there somehow, and just throw myself at these guys recklessly and rip their esophaguses out. And so there was a real anger and hatred that developed inside of me right there. And uh, I think that there is a little bit of a takeaway. And I'm just trying to be real. That's just where I was at at that stage of life. There's, there's a little bit of a takeaway we could discuss. It has to do with adversity. You know, it, Adversity comes in a lot of different forms. It's a pretty broad umbrella. And the thing about adversity is everyone in this room has faced it at some point in their life multiple times. You don't get this far in life without facing it. It's uncontrollable, circumstances often. You literally don't get a custom picket. It just invades your life like a tsunami or a hurricane. The tornado comes in, runs you over, and you have no choice in that. You can't control that. You can't control that. But there is something that you can control. You can control the most important determining factor in all of that. And what is it? It's your mindset. You are the determiner of whether or not that adversity will be what we could call a wing or a weight. You know, will you allow it to hit you and be a weight that just sinks you, leaves you knocked down, never to resurface again? People see what you got hit with and they go, man, he's out for the count, never coming back from that one. Or do you find a wing in the moment somehow, which is just a, a way to rise to the occasion? And I say it's case by case basis, but in the teams, this is what we call it, being forged by adversity. If you look up the Steel Creed, that's one of the first lines forged by adversity. So adversity will either cause you to fail or you will be forged by it. And there's something unique about, I would say, the Christian life. You know, when you're in the will of God and you know him, he has a way of working all the things towards the good, not necessarily for your individual good, but the ultimate good. And that's what we sign up for. And there's an anonymous quote. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but it's in my head. And I thought I'd share it with you guys because I think that it does kind of capture what God is doing in the life of a Christian man when they go through adversity. And sometimes you wonder if God's even paying attention. Sometimes you wonder what is God up to right now? Just remember that he is a master sculptor and he has a hammer and he has a chisel. And sometimes he's chipping away and sometimes chunks are coming off. And we're like, ow, that really hurt, Lord. Do you know what you're up to? Just trust. He knows exactly the image that he has in mind. And so that quote goes like this. It says, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While man's tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how God bends but he never breaks when it's man's good that he undertakes. And how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. And so that's what we need to trust in is that God knows, the master sculptor, he knows what he is up to and you trust yourself in his grip.
And so where do you find that wing? Because look it, you're going to face more adversity. No one's immune to more. You've faced it, but it's not a matter of if, but when there will be more. I have to come to grips with the fact that I'm going to hit, get hit with bad news. And it could be something related to the workplace. This could be very personal within your household. Things are going to go bad. They're going to hit the fan and the family looks to you, dad, how do we deal with this problem? How do we handle this right now? Accept the fact that that's coming. And I don't say that to be a downer. I say that so that there's prior preparation in advance so that you know what to do in advance. Don't let it be a weight that sinks you, leaves you knocked down. What do you need to find? You need to find the wing in that moment. And what exactly is that wing in that moment? What is the forging process that's happening? I can't tell you that, but I'm telling you, look for the, find the wing. It's case by case basis. In that particular situation with Scott, you know, I'd say this is where I found my wing. Last conversation. You know, when we lose somebody, we go back to the last time we were with them. We go back to the last conversation we had with them. Why? Simple, because that's it. That's all we had, and we never knew it. And so I'm going over that conversation in my mind. What did we talk about? What was said? And that's when I remembered his words to me. He says, Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. That was the wing that got me up right there. That was the beginning of the forging process. I became determined that I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it for so much more. So I had his name written on the inside of my hat as a constant reminder, motivation to make it through training. SEAL training, it's difficult. I think the numbers could speak for themselves. I started the class of 173 guys. By graduation day, only 13 of that original class number is still standing there. That graduation day, by far one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life. I mean, going back to that parking lot of being a loser, right, in this school, just like all the peers, like not even average Joe, and now I've made it. I'm getting this trident, the insignia that says, you have done it. Welcome to the brotherhood. You are a SEAL. This is your identity. I remember exactly where I was at looking up thinking, Scott, we did this. Family, friends there in the background. Not only was this one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments. Here's the crazy thing. I just got to be real with you is that it didn't take more than 24 hours before I felt like the wind just came out of the sail and everything began to go downhill and circle a drain from that point forward. And I couldn't wrap my mind around why at the time. I mean, I just achieved the ultimate. You think you'd be happy, right? Like you think you'd be set. I thought, you know, once I become a seal, that's when everything will come together. Everything will be on the up and up from that point forward. It didn't last more than 24 hours before I began to feel like I started the stages of some of the most miserable times in my life. And it was years later I heard these words spoken by a Christian philosopher over the radio where I thought, man, that nails it. Years later, finally got words that explain exactly what I experienced on that day. And these were the words. He says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate. And in the end, it lets him down. One of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate. In the end, it lets him down. Again, something I think everyone in this room is familiar with, at least to some degree. Sometimes we refer to it as the human condition. Sometimes we talk about it as the grass is always greener on the other side. Not quite satisfied, fulfilled with where you're at. Well, what do you want, man? I just want a little bit more. And so we buy into this belief. If I could just achieve this goal, if I could just get to this status or identity, or maybe what I'm missing in my life is a significant other. I need a spouse. Maybe what we need are some little children running around to bring that fulfillment. Whatever it is, you keep moving the bar. You bind to the belief, if I could just hit this thing. So you get something in your crosshairs. And as you're sighting in on it, you're hungering after it. You believe that is going to give you some satisfaction. And so having it in your crosshairs and the hunger leads to good stuff. What does that lead to? 
It leads to whatever it takes to get there. The hard work, determination, blood, sweat, tears. And have you ever had your moment where you get exactly what you're aiming at and you eat it up and you are satisfied just like you thought you would be? But what happens? Unexpectedly, the satisfaction didn't last quite as long as you thought it would. And so what do you do here? Well, we don't panic here. We just step back for a moment. We put on a little thinking cap. And after a little introspect, a little looking within, a light goes off in our head. Ah, I know why this didn't give me lasting fulfillment. Simple, man. I didn't go for something big enough. If I really want it to last, I need to raise the bar. I need to go to that next rung of the ladder. So that's exactly what we do. We raise the bar. We got that new thing that we're going after. We're trucking up that mountain a little bit higher thirsting after it, working towards it, getting there, drinking it up. This is the one. You are satisfied, just like you thought you would be. But what happens? It's like a vicious cycle. You just get hungry and thirsty all over again, and seemingly there just is no end point. But there is an end point. And I guess you could say, and that is the point to that quote of one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, in the end, it lets him down. See, the big question is this. What happens when you finally arrive at a place where you no longer, like all the previous times before, can say, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just go to the next rung of the ladder. No, you can't do that this time. Why not? Dude, you're at the last rung of the ladder. You can't say, well, I'll just go up, gain a little bit more elevation from here. No, not this time. Why not? You're at the peak of the mountain. There's nothing left to climb. And yet, like all of the other times, you're hungry. You're thirsty for more. But unlike all of the other times, this time, there is no next. This is something that we see in the lives of professional athletes, rock stars, movie stars. They've climbed to the top of their respective top of the world. And what do we see going on in their lives? We see it all the time, every day. Just look at your phone. They're destroying their own lives with drugs and alcohol. Seems like they're just throwing it all away. They got the dream job, Anthony Bourdain, getting to go to parts unknown. Who wouldn't want to trade shoes with that guy? And secretly, he's so miserable underneath it all that he's taking his own life. And we're sitting back going, why? Why, dude? Like, don't you know what you have? Don't you know what people would trade to be in those shoes? But maybe that's just it. Having all that the world has to offer isn't really all that it's cracked up to be. And we hate to hear that because it sounds like such a downer, right? We live in America, the pursuit of happiness. Maybe happiness doesn't mean today what it meant when those words were originally penned. You know, happiness today is all about feelings and emotions. I don't think that's the American dream. What did those words mean originally? It had nothing to do with something inward. It was something outward. It was something bigger and greater than yourself. You know, Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland makes the point uh, that happiness to the ancients and those that lived in the past, it was about living a life where you're working towards something bigger and greater than yourself. It was very external. You think of like the greatest generation, World War II. Or John Adams, when he penned words and says things like, your generation, speaking of future generations, that's what's on his mind, not himself. Your generation will never know how much it cost my generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make good use of it, he says. In other words, are we living a life that was worth dying for because that's what they spent their lives towards? And so living a happy life to them was always living something bigger and greater. It was living a life of wisdom and virtue. What is happiness today? Same word, poured into it, different meaning. Happiness today is not the outward life. Happiness today, we're living in one of the most selfish, narcissistic times, the selfie generation. It's all about me, 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 and my feelings. 
And that is not something worth living for right there, trying to just live towards that. And how do you know that's what it is? It's simple. If you're trying to figure out if somebody's happy, what do you ask them? How do you feel? And so it's all about feelings. And feelings, they're a roller coaster. They come and go. So that's not a good you know, sight to try and focus in on. Jesus puts it best, though. He says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in the end loses his soul? That is exactly what my problem was. I, in a way, gained my version of the whole world in becoming a seal, but at the time, my soul was not right with God. And that didn't put me on some spiritual quest, but that, looking back, that's exactly what was going on. And here's the thing, is if you have no peace with your creator, the one that spoke this universe into existence, the very maker of all things, if you don't have peace with him, have no expectation to have any peace here on earth. And so I get put on a team. And while I'm on this team, I'm thinking, well, that's it, man. And if anything to look forward to, maybe getting a little get back for Scott overseas. Unfortunately, that was the fuel I was burning on right there. And it's not a healthy fuel to, to burn on. And so I kind of adopted the whole work hard, play hard mentality. You know, I did my job, but then when time was off, Man, it was time to like go out, cut loose. I felt like I was just so numb and calloused underneath it all that what made me feel, I'm sure many of you feel the same feeling, you know, maybe you're at that stage right now, was to go out and drink, cut loose with the guys. That stimulated me. That made me feel something. But looking back on it, all that led to was just a bunch of personal shame and robbery because I would drink into oblivion, black out, wake up the next day, and be informed by people like, dude, do you remember what you did last night? And find out about all the foolish things. Try and laugh it off as though it's something comical. When in reality it is, it's just personal robbery. Everything really came to a head one night after waking up needing to get 26 stitches in my hand for a thing. I don't remember. And so I got family and friends confronting me. And uh, the family especially. And I realized, wow, I kind of really gave them a scare. And so I owe them one. I want to go out and drink this next night again. I didn't have any remorse for what I did, but I, I realized I kind of owe them one. They want me to go to this church thing in the middle of the week. I'll go with them. I'll suffer through it. I'll punch my card in. It'll be over by nine o'clock at night at the latest. And then when they go to bed, I'll go out and I'll do what I wanted to do. And so we go. And the passage that gets opened up is what we just read, Second Kings chapter five. And now I want to give you a breakdown on that. So remember this Naaman in Second Kings five. This guy sounds like he could have been a seal had there been such a thing during his time. He's had all this success in battle. He's got this entourage of men that obviously highly respect him. His status, like look how it's getting him into the VIP meet and greets. Even the king enjoys Naaman's company. He's rubbing shoulders with the king. He's this mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And how serious was that? Let's just say it was a little worse than a case of eczema. Jesus, looking back, said nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. And so it's a death sentence. And so now kind of circle back and picture Naaman's life like this, if you would. So much for all of that success. So much for that outward man. It's all a persona. It's a facade. Because what's really going on underneath that armor there, Naaman? What's really going on underneath that clothing? Well, what's really going on is he's literally deteriorating. He's falling apart. Naaman is a dead man walking. Well, as I sat there, how quickly I related with that man right there. And maybe many of you... I know that many of you can relate with that man. In a room this size, it's very probable. Who are you? When you think about it, who are you in front of your coworkers, your family members, your friends, when in reality, underneath all of that, there's some things going on that so many don't know about. 
No doubt about it, Naaman kept that leprosy covered up because when there's some type of vulnerability, did we just air it out and let everyone see? No, keep that stuff covered up. Covered up. It's under the armor. And so, no doubt about it, Naaman's probably tried everything he could do to fix himself of this human predicament that he has, just like so many of us try and fix ourselves of this human condition. But it can't be done. Jesus says no one has ever been healed of, of this leprosy. Look at the unsung hero in this story. Got to give credit to where credit's due. Some little girl speaks up. She's the evangelist in the story. Has the boldness just to speak up and say, if only my master with the prophet was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Well, Naaman's desperate. He's probably thought he's tried everything, but here's something he hasn't tried. So he's got to go to the king and, and, and get the okay from the king, because remember, this is enemy-occupied territory he's going to be going to. So the king, what does he say? Absolutely go. And so he's going. He's bringing the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver, apparel. We're going to find out that this is not something you could just pay for. And he gets all the way there to the door with his entourage there with him, 150-mile trip, and the guy doesn't even come to the door. What does he do? Remember, sends a servant to the door who relays this message. If you just go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, when you come up, your flesh will be restored to you. You will be clean. What was Naaman's response? Let's go. Not even. He became so furious. I mean, could you imagine? Put yourself in his shoes for a moment here. Does this guy have any idea who Naaman is? He came all this way with his men, and he disrespects him like this by not even giving him a face-to-face -face conversation. He probably feels like he could just about go through that door right now and have that guy's head. It was almost proportional to the more important of a person you were in those times, the farther they come out to greet you. I mean, when a king comes to a new city, where are the people? Are they outside their door? No, they're outside the city gates. That's where the welcoming party begins. At the very least, this guy should have been there at the door rolling out the red carpet for him. And instead, he gets just treated like this normal and basically gets told to go, in his mind, wash it off. And so it says that he leaves in this rage. We don't have to wonder what's going on inside of his head because the venting is recorded. It's all out loud in God's word, starting off with this expectation of, I expected this guy to come out of his place. He thought some real special effects was going to take place. He thought he was going to come out, wave his hand over the place, call in the name of the Lord his God, and just heal the leprosy. And instead, he gets told to wash it off in the water. So he's leaving in this rage. And if he continues off in that direction, what happens to him? He dies. Dead man walking. Well, if you haven't caught it yet, what is Naaman's real problem? Is it that leprosy or is the problem deeper than that? It's deeper. And I heard it. It's the pride. It's the ego. And frankly, guys, especially for us as men, that is like just, man, that is the Achilles heel right there. It is that pride and that ego. And that is how we got into this mess from the very beginning. Satan fell from heaven because of his pride. He thought he could set himself above God. And then you think about Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God, right? It's just, it's the pride and the ego. Every sin, it seems like, is just infused with pride and ego. And so that's his real problem. He's leaving in this rage. Well, if that's the problem. Here's the cool part, is that Naaman is surrounded by some men that care about him. And praise God for those guys in our lives that care about us enough to speak up and say something to us when we need to hear it. And so they're running up to him, and I'm sure they don't know exactly how this all works, but they know this much. We need to get our Naaman back in front of that God of Israel. Step back and let the supernatural take place. And maybe we need to be those men, and maybe you are that man tonight where you think to yourself, man, I just need to get my buddy. I need to get this guy in front of the message of the God of Israel. Step back and let God do his thing. 
And so they're pleading with them. They're just trying to use some simple logic. Come on, look, Naaman, you know. If this guy came out and gave you some big, great thing to do, you would have done it. I mean, let's use our imagination. That's so true. I mean, what if the prophet did come out and just really stroke his ego? Oh, Naaman, the mighty man of valor, your reputation precedes you. What an honor to have you here. All right, we're going to get you fixed up with this leprosy. It'll be done. We got quite the rite of passage, though. It's going to take strength and might. It's going to take some hard work. Kick off your shoes. It's going to start with broken glass. And then uh, we got a CrossFit exercise for you. <laughs> if you finish this wad in time, you will be fixed of your leprosy. I can't help but to think that Naaman would be kicking off those shoes saying, show me where to start. Challenge accepted. But because it was such a simple thing, just go wash and be clean. What did it seem like to him? A foolish thing. What we can't miss about that, in case you don't know, is that is exactly what it says about the preaching of the cross in the New Testament. It says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. Well, no doubt about it, Naaman here is in a state of perishing. But something these guys say, I don't know how, but God uses it. It wasn't brilliant, but God can speak through a donkey if he wants to. You know, Jesus makes the point that he can, God could have the rocks cry out if he wants to. And sometimes, guys, you might have the most ran, what you think is like the most random thing that you should share with somebody, and it's something of the prompting of, you know, the spirit. Be careful not to hold that back because that person needs to hear. And you might not really know how that all sort of works out in terms of like the chaos theory or butterfly effect. But I'll give you an example. When I was in the teams, I had a Christian seal that was trying to share with me. And uh, I told him, look, man, I don't know. I've tried the prayer. I'm not saying I'm an atheist. I'm on the team, dude. God squad. Like, I believe in Jesus. But the reality was I didn't have a real personal relationship with Jesus. It was more like picking a team. All right. That's the team I'm rolling with. All right. And so I'm like, yeah, me and Jesus. Right. Like, but no real relationship. I said, I prayed this prayer. I don't know. I've been there in church. I put my head down. I've repeated the thing over and over but I lift my head up and I don't experience any difference. There is no change. I'm not like the people around me. Maybe I'm just different. And he said this. He says, Chad, I don't know what it is, but I do know this much. God will not work with you until you give him an empty template to work with. And right there, he just ripped my excuse that I've used over and over and over right out of my mouth. Because the reality was, as I said that I've tried, but I never actually tried. I realized I never gave God an empty template to work with because whenever I prayed the prayer, I never intended to really repent of all of my sin. I felt like I would give God 98% of myself, but there's a couple things that I had no intention of ever stopping, but I thought 98%, that's a pretty good deal. The reality is it's, it's all or nothing. And so what did I do with that information right there? Did I respond to it? Nope. What happened was is I, now I have my excuse ripped away and those words haunted me that night. Days later, weeks later, years later, I still didn't do anything with it. I knew I'm not right with God. But at the same time, I wasn't acting on it. But the night that I did get saved, I remembered those words. And I knew exactly what I needed to do. Give God that empty template. And so when I became a believer and I, I shared with this guy, Jeff Bramstead, Seal, he's out now. He's got a Christian ministry. Maybe a next speaker for you guys. He, uh, I tell him, Jeff, I did it, man. Like, it, like I'm a new creation I want to tell you something. Remember that time that you said God will not work with you until you give him an empty template to work with? He's looking at me. No. <laughs> I'm like, what? I'm like, no, no, no. Like, dude, look at, we're on the silver strand. Here we were in San Diego. You said God will not work with you. He's like, 
I said that. That doesn't sound like something I would say. I'm like, dude, no, you don't understand. Those words haunted me for years after that. And so the point being here, right, is that it might be a little insignificant thing that you don't even remember, but God sets off a firestorm in somebody's heart in their mind. And so they're saying to him, name it, come on. And so he decides he's going to do it. And he is about to do what I think is by far the most difficult thing for any man to do. What is he about to do? Humble himself. And so that moment where he's changing direction, he's making that 180. There's a whole lot more going on than a mere physical change of direction. There is a major change going on inside, emotionally, intellectually, most importantly, spiritually. I think Naaman understands now it's not the water. It's not the water that's going to fix me. It's the God of Israel. And so if I am faithful, he will be faithful and he will do the heavy lifting. And so in order for me to live, I have to die. I got to go to my own funeral right now. Make that walk. I need to humble myself. And so... Faithfully, he begins to make that approach to the water. No doubt about it, that armor that he's wearing so heavy, that would have to be peeled away. He's peeling away what needed to go all that time, the pride, the ego, being transparent, dipping himself five, six, seven times, comes up seventh time. And the literal Hebrew, the picture is this, he had brand new skin like that of a baby. Could you try and imagine just for a moment the filth of leprosy being spotted and blotted and all these blemishes just struck through with it and then he comes up and he's got that brand new skin like that of a baby in an operating room i remember being kind of on the edge of my seat because i'm so captivated and relating with this name and i really felt almost like i was like at the movies and just really into it you know i i loved going to the movies at that time especially because the movies kind of felt like a little bit of an escape You know, you can just get away from all the clutter and debris of life, like whatever's going on, the mess out there for a little bit. You can forget about your problems, go into a nice air-conditioned facility where they bring down the lights, and for a little bit, you don't got to be you. You vicariously live through a character. I like the hero movies, like Batman, right? And yeah, he goes through some adversity in the beginning, and then it all works out for the hero in the end. So it all works out for Naaman in the end. Well, I've been to this part of the movie plenty of times. This is where it's over. The credits roll. The lights come back on, and it's no longer time for you to take a break. Now it's time for you to go back out there into the world and face reality. Well, I want to make a point that the credits don't roll right here. That just as God provided a way out for Naaman, he's provided a way out for you and I as well. And it doesn't come in the form of dipping ourselves in the Jordan River. Look, at this is what God did. He dipped his son down into the world. That's Jesus on a rescue mission. You could call it a hostage rescue mission. This Jesus, he lived a holy, perfect, sinless life. Guys, if you haven't caught it yet, what is the leprosy a picture of for us today? It is a picture of our sin. Spiritually speaking, we, apart from God, are lepers. We are spotted and blotted and blemished, and just like Naaman couldn't do anything to get the leprosy off of himself, is there anything we could do to get sin off of ourselves? No, you can exhaust every avenue out there. But just as God provided a way out for Naaman, this God has provided a way out for you and I as well. And so Naaman was a certain man on the outside, this persona. Remember, who are you? On the outside, in front of these coworkers and family members and friends, when in reality, underneath it all, Naaman had a disease that was destroying him. It leads to death. And we have a spiritual disease apart from God. We could call SIN positive. It's sin. And guess what? The wages of sin is death. That is not a mere physical death. 
the Bible's very clear that everyone's going to die physically. All right, it's appointed once for a man to die, and then comes the judgment. There's such a thing as second death. And that second death, not going to sugarcoat it, the Bible's very clear. It is the lake of fire, it is hell. That is the consequence of sin. Sin is very serious. Jesus taught on the topic of hell more than any other topic in the Gospels. Go read it for yourself. Fact check it. And why would he do that? Because he doesn't want anyone going there. Because if you really care about somebody and you love them and you see them caught up in something, like some type of substance abuse that destroys them out of love you share with them, don't do this. It's going to destroy your life. It has horrible consequences that come with it. And so it's not a scare tactic. It's just what you do. You share the truth in love. And so sin is nasty. We can't get it off ourselves, but God provided a way out. When Jesus went to the cross, here's the picture. Here we are spotted and blotted and blemished, but this life that Jesus lived, not a mark on him. Perfect, holy, pure, blameless, goes to the cross, trades skin with you and I. I mean, you talk about the greatest act of love. You talk about a guy that just jumped on a hand grenade for you. At the cross, Jesus traded skin with you and I. He took all of our sin, all of our shame, our leprosy, as it were, all upon himself as though he lived the life, the mess that we have lived, the mess that really only you know and God knows. He took all of that at the cross, paid for the penalty of sin in full at the cross, and then rose again from the dead. And that is significant because there's no Christianity without believing that. He rose again from the dead. Even Paul says, if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. And so by rising again from the dead, what does that signify, guys? And do you believe it? What that signifies is that, hey, theologically, we know why Jesus went to the cross, save his people from their sin. Historically, why did Jesus go to the cross? The accusation for this capital punishment was that he was a blasphemer. They say, for you being a man, make yourself to be God. And they didn't believe he was God. They think that's blasphemy. And so they wanted to punish him up there on the cross. And as he hung up there on the cross, they celebrated and thought, boy, did we have it right. Look at him. If you really are who you say you are, why don't you come down off of that cross? They had no idea. Even Satan was fooled. In this case, it reminds me of that story of of Haman. You know, he wanted to hang Mordecai from the gallows. He built these gallows and set them all up. And ultimately, he was the one that hung up there. While Jesus hung up there on the cross, and I'm sure Satan did not know what God was up to, Satan didn't realize that really he's being destroyed right there at the cross. By God raising Jesus from the grave, that vindicates him. That he really was who he claimed to be. He was no blasphemer. This is God's authentication, stamp of approval. He really was who he claimed to be. So it vindicated him and it validates his teaching. Teachings that we have to come to grips with and consider because very mutually exclusive statements. This is what Jesus says. It is either true or false. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe that's true or do you believe it's false? There's really no middle ground. He says, you're either for me or you're against me. You can't just say, I abstain from voting. This isn't Washington, D.C. You know, he'll say it for you, all right? And so you have to come to grips with, do you believe that this is true? But at the cross, he pays for sin in full at the cross, rises again from the dead and from this resurrected life. Here's what he says. He says, because I live, you also shall live. In other words, you too can overcome the grave. Life here on earth is not about a happy life here. 
This is American Christianity today. It's crazy. And you hear it from so many different popular pastors and pulpits about how Jesus and God, you should get them into your life because God's going to breathe life into your dreams and help you get your startup going and all of this junk. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is about overcoming the grave that this life will have trouble. And I hope for you that you have some good times in there as well. But you need to know in this life, you will have trouble. How does that message preach to the Christians caught under the grips of the Taliban right now, right? How does that, that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel message. It's that this world is a mess, you know, but God has come to restore us and to make a way that we can have a right relationship with him. And though a man can kill you, don't be afraid of him because you overcome the grave. And there is gonna be a new heaven and a new earth, no more tears, no more sorrow. That's the hope that we look forward to, right? Not some TED talk with a little Jesus sprinkled in it, all right? That's not Christianity. And so he says, because I live, you also shall live. How do we receive this? Remember for Naaman, the turning point was that moment where he literally turned, made that 180, and there was a whole lot more going on underneath that I'll remember. What we are to do, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, you want to overcome this grave, you want to go into the new place. If anyone wants to come after me, you must deny self. Deny self. Walk to your own funeral. It's repent, which is a word we don't use outside of these doors. It's not on the street. And so what is repentance? I ask people on the street all the time. They say it's to say you're sorry. A little bit more loaded than that, right? It's so sorry, I, I want to change. So sorry, I'm just repulsed. I'm disgusted. You know, just Jesus, as you were nailed up there on the cross, nailed the old me up there. And as you were buried, just bury that guy. And as you rose again, new from the grave, that's what we're asking God for. Lord, just give me the new life that only you can offer. I need your help. You repent of your sin and you put your faith and trust in Jesus to do what? To do what he says he will do. Save you from your sin. He does the heavy lifting. And the moment any man does that, you don't have my word on it. You've got God's word on it. He'll remember your sin no more. He'll remove it as far away as the east is from the west. Remember how quickly, how immediately that leprosy of Naaman's was just, he comes up, brand new skin like that of a baby. The New Testament says, repent and be changed that your sins may be blotted out and that times refreshing may come. March 14, 2007, active duty Navy SEAL. Big plans are going out later that night. No, those plans were changed. I comprehended that this is the truth. This is truth and this is truth that I need to respond to. It's not just enough to intellectually assent to it, right? Even the demons believe and tremble. It's more than just a mind assent. There has to be a change inside of the heart. There has to be this confession sincerely from the heart. Jesus, be my savior, be my Lord. I believe you rose again from the dead. I ask for that forgiveness. And that March 14, 2007, I guess you could say the scriptures are very true. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things pass away, behold, all things become new. My outlook completely changed. First of all, just this comprehension of, man, I'm forgiven of my sin. And just, man, the weight of the world lifted off my shoulders in a sense. It wasn't like a physical feeling, but it was this sort of just awareness, like seeing in black and white, and now I see color. Now I have something alive in me, the spirit of God that I didn't have really before. And the way that I looked at being a seal, I would learn to be completely different. Here I was trying to find happiness and fulfillment in some external thing, right? Something of the world. And that'll always leave you unsatisfied. It will. You'll always be hungry and thirsty for more. It's like decaf. It just, it won't deliver for you. All right. But if you change your perspective and say, 
Whatever I do, as it says in Colossians 3, whatever I do in word or deed, I do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now you can go back to that thing that in and of itself doesn't carry any internal significance, eternal significance, but you're infusing the eternal one into it. You're bringing the Lord Jesus into the thing that you do, whether that be a seal for Christ, corporate world, construction world for Christ, whatever you do, you could do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that, that little thing that you do, it isn't such a little thing. It bears eternal weight, eternal significance. It echoes in eternity. That's the way I looked at moving forward from there. I'm a seal for Christ. Fast forward to that final operation. I wish I had time to hit the details. Let me just cut to the chase. The most important part, we kind of alluded to the reality that our freedoms aren't free. Came home alive out of that situation, but we got to remember it doesn't always work out that way. I want to highlight a couple names in closing here. One would be Michael Monsoor, who is a U.S. Navy SEAL. When he's in a place called Ramadi, Iraq, He's up on top of a roof providing cover for other seals that were out there on the road. Where from this unknown location, a hand grenade gets thrown up there on the roof by this insurgent that snuck up. And the thing literally bounces off of his chest. I mean, could you imagine? Just hits him, falls in the dark. And he had an exit, just a step and a pivot away. All he had to do was just boom, boom, he's out of the way of this grenade. But here's the catch is that there's other seals that were in a proned out position providing cover. And they didn't have time to get up. And make it past this grenade. And so what does he do? Mikey, in a split second, selfless act, he just yells to these guys, grenade, so they have time to take some type of cover as he throws himself over the top of it, covering it. And he absorbed the blast of that grenade, took all the shrapnel, this metal, his body took it, and he suffered and died. But because of what he did, every single one of these other guys on the roof, they all lived. And so you can mark these words down in history as very true. Greater love has no one than this and one that lays down his life for his friends. Let's not even talk like we would do that because only those that have done it can actually, that's just the reality. You might like to think that we would do it, but that is the greatest act of love performed. My friend Scott, you know, although just all these awful things, you know, killed and, and hung from that bridge, as I look back, I realize, and maybe this is for some of you, you need to know this too. I'm sure many of you has lo- have lost friends or maybe even fathers that have served in combat, and uh, you don't like to talk about it, you don't like to bring it up, I realize it's very difficult. It takes some time to vent these things out. But there's two deaths they could die, and you, you better not let them die that second death. There's the one that they did die, and then there's the memory of them. you got to share the memory of them. Otherwise, they die off in that sense. Although he was killed and hung from this bridge, it wasn't in vain. He was the type of guy that was over there for the sake of freedom. And so he is a picture of those words as well, just manifested in the flesh, greater love, has no one than this one that lays on his life for his friends. And finally, one more, the last one, would be the one who spoke those words. None other than Jesus of Nazareth. And he said those words at a very unique time when prior to going to the cross. Please think about the cross this way. Here's kind of one of the, the, the things that we have to contend with, I think, within the church. We have to caution ourselves. Let's catch ourselves right now. We can talk about Jesus and the sacrifice that took place at the cross sometimes a little too casually like not really moved or affected by it. But when we talk about Mike Monsoor, Scott Helvinson, or so many others that have gone before us and paid the ultimate price, it is somber. You can hear a needle drop in the room. Why? Because it hits you where it should. You feel something. And that's good. That's the proper perspective. And so if anything, just let that help you out a little bit to get a a clear picture of what the cross is all about. That just as Michael Monsoor, if you could look at the cross through the life of a Michael Monsoor, use him like a lens to look through. If you're looking at the cross through his life, this is what took place at the cross. Jesus didn't absorb the blast of a hand grenade. 
but he absorbed the wrath of our sin upon himself. He covered it. Why? So that we could live on with him in eternity. Remember that grenade was never anyone else. It never Mikey's problem. It was always the others. Sin was never Jesus' problem, but he covered it for us so that we could live on beyond the grave with him. And as my friend Scott killed and hung from that bridge, ultimately for freedom's sake, just never forget this picture that Jesus was killed and he was hung, wasn't he? From the cross of Calvary so that we could be set free from the eternal consequences of our own sin. And so greater love has no one than this one that lays down his life for his friends. You can see it in men like Mike Monsoor and Scott Helvenston. And here's one for us all, a legacy for us all to look into. None other than Jesus himself looked to the cross. That's the proper perspective of that King of Kings, that Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says, for he, speaking of the Father, made him Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And why is the word might there? Because it's not a built-in default position in life. Not everybody will. In fact, Jesus says, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Another teaching on hell. And he says, there's many that go in by it. Do you believe that? Like the majority of the world is on that wide road going through a wide gate to hell. He says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. There are few who find it. Well, what's the difficult thing to do? Because I think the difficult thing to do is what we ought to want to do. I guess you could say tonight that the difficult thing to do is what we could call the name and thing to do. Humble ourselves. In the end, so many just will refuse to. They rather shake their fist up at God and say, God, I want to live my life my way. And C.S. Lewis makes this point that there's two types in the end. Those that bow their knee before God and say, God, thy will be done. And there's the others that just refuse to bow the knee. And trust me, their knee will be bowed. But they refuse to in the moment. And God looks at them and says, thy will be done. If you don't want anything to do with God, he will grant you your wish. But if you come to this point where you realize, man, I care for this. Like, I, I love him. My loyalty towards him because look at the first move that he, he made towards me. We love him because he first loved us. Look at what he's done. My love towards him outweighs my love for this sin and this junk in my life that has never helped me. If you come to that point, you turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in him, well, then you have his word on it. He says that he'll confess you before his father. You confess me, I'll confess you before my father who is in heaven. The reward is great. And so if we could just bow our heads and pray together and open up maybe an opportunity for any man here that needs to get some things straightened out with their creator, you can do that right now. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you thankful for our freedoms, thankful for the freedoms that we we are still hanging on to here in America while we have them, that we could come together like this uh, on, on an evening, on a night, and enjoy a meal and enjoy a little bit of time away from the rest of the things going on in life, just to hang with each other. And we don't forget that these freedoms didn't come freely. That even as we speak right now, there are soldiers standing in that gap, being that living sacrifice, defending this way of life. We certainly remember those that have gone before us and paid the ultimate price. And we focus our attention now on your son, Jesus, who laid down his life so that we could have life with him in eternity. While everyone's heads bowed, eyes closed, I just ask, guys, if you find yourself coming here this evening, maybe realizing that this so speaks of you, this is you. You have been living this life of Naaman. You are this other person. You have the armor on, when in reality, 
there's other things going on underneath it all that the world doesn't know about, could you just be real with yourself for a moment and consider here, who are you? Who are you when you're in your room, your lights are off, and all you're left with is those thoughts? You know who that person is. And I got to say, God knows who that person is. But here's the good news is that he doesn't want to point a finger at you. He doesn't want to rub your nose in some shame. What he wants to do is step in and set you free. And maybe as men, we think sometimes we have just done too much wrong, that we're just too ashamed we can't show our face before God. We've gone to that well too many times. Can't ask for forgiveness again. Done too much wrong. Unforgivable. Let me just say, don't flatter yourself. Don't ever flatter yourself and think that any sin that you have ever committed could possibly outweigh, outdo what the King of Kings has done at the cross. You cannot outdo him. And so that is a lie. That is a lie from the evil one. And so if you've come to this point realizing, man, I'm not right with God, but I want to get right with him. Remember, all you got to do is just be real. Do the naming thing. Humble yourself before him and ask Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. For those that do, the reward is great. Naaman left one thing behind in that water that he did not go back home with. He left the leprosy behind. What have you come into this building with that you could walk out of here without leaving it behind? Get it straightened out with God today. And so I would love to lead any of you that need to make that commitment to the Lord in a commitment to him, a prayer. And this is a prayer where we do just what we're supposed to do, repent of our sin and put our faith and trust in Jesus. All I ask is that if you pray this prayer, that you mean it, because it's quite possible for you to do it in a, in a senseless way like I did so many times in the past. Think about what you say before you say it. And so if you are prepared to do that right now, I just ask that you would acknowledge it by lifting a hand wherever you are, and we'll pray together. We'll get this straightened out. Just hold your hand up all the ways you go all in with the Lord. Maybe you realize you've been playing the part of a a prodigal. You would identify as a Christian. That is the label on the outside of the bottle. But you know the content on the inside. There is something else poured in there. And you want to get this straightened out. You want to get back on track. You want to come home to the Lord. You can make this recommitment to him in this prayer. So if that's you, would you just lift up a hand and we'll get this straightened out together. Amen. Praise God. Leave this place without these things you've come in here with. Get it straightened out. I'm sure some of you, there's a tug of war going on inside right now. If your hand needs to be up, just get it up and get this off your chest. Be done with it. Those of you that have your hands up, I just ask that as we pray together where you are, if your hand is up and you really mean it, as we pray together, just stand up to your feet. I'm not going to call you for it, but just stand up where you are. And if you don't mean it, it's fine. Slip your hand back down. No one's going to point you out, but I think that it needs to be pointed out For you personally, am I really all in? Am I really giving God an empty template to work with? And so if your hand is up and you mean it, stand up. And if you don't, just slip your hand back down. But just kind of remember where you're at there. Those of you that are standing now, I just ask that as we pray together, just those of you standing, everyone else praying for these, just please, those of you standing, just look up at me. I just want to make it very clear. There's quite possibly a scenario where you pray a prayer that means nothing. Because you don't think about what you say before you say it. Think about what you say. 
Take ownership of these words. Make them yours. So you go into this eyes wide open in a sense. Remember, this is a prayer we say. We repent of our sin. And we place our faith and trust in this risen Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. If you mean those words, God's word on it, not mine. Some kind of transaction takes place. Forgiveness of sin, eternity in heaven. His word is better than any man's word. If you guys are ready to do that, would you please close your eyes. Repeat these words out loud from a sincere heart after me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but you died on that cross for me and rose again. I turn from my sin now and I ask you to be my Savior and be my Lord. Thank you for loving me and dying for me and help me to follow you from this moment forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. Debt in the kingdom of darkness. Give, let's give him a hand. You guys can take your seats. And I just want to encourage you that if you did, just do that. You know if you meant those words, and God knows if you meant those words. Remember, it's his word on it. I want to encourage you, though, share it with somebody, all right? Hit the ground running, all right? So sharing it with somebody is going to give you some accountability with that person as well. Even if you share it, I told the guys on my team, most of them not Christians. I told them, hey, guys, I need you to know something. Last night, I became a Christian. That was really hard for me to say, all right? And they're like, okay, Williams, good for you, man. And uh, that kept me accountable in the sense that anytime I ever did anything unchristian, they're like, hey, I thought you were a Christian. They would hold me to a higher standard. So it really helped. But please come talk to some of the leadership in the church tonight, too. They'll be down here in the front. If you need a Bible, they'll get you a Bible uh, in your hand and they'll tell you how to hit the ground running. There's so much more to share. But I realize we're getting late, you know, in the night. Uh, A couple of things real quick. The question gets asked over and over out there, what does this frog mean? Someone's like, is it from Hot Topic? Is it part of the curse from Exodus? Like, no, it's not a sinister thing like that. Uh, In the SEAL teams, we're called frogmen. And so we wear a bone frog, the skeleton frog, you kind of see it better on the back, to honor and remember fallen frogmen. It's a memorial to them. And you recognize those words, greater love has no one than this one that lays on his life for his friends. But you'll notice there's no scripture reference. There's no John 15, 13. Why? Because... If there was John 15, 13 on the back, no one would ask you about the shirt. They get intrigued by the frog and they'll ask you about the frog, golden opportunity to share with them about how these frogmen shed their blood for your earthly freedom. But if it said John 15, 13, they go, oh, it's one of those God shirts. I don't want to walk into that one, right? They walk right into it. And so you get to share with them, these guys shed their blood for your earthly freedom and they go, I like those words on the back too. What is that? Like Socrates or something? Like, no. That's actually the Savior. And just as these guys shed their blood for your earthly freedom, he shed his blood for your eternal freedom. And the response I have gotten more than 100 times out there in the airports, wherever, it opens their eyes. They go, I never thought about it that way. Like those are the words I hear over and over. And so it's really a great tool for the gospel. And then finally, uh, one last thing. I realize that we're pretty late here, but um, do you guys want to know what happened in that ambush? All right, we're out of time, so you got to have to get the book, okay? It's in the back. Be happy to sign it. We're out of time, guys, all right? I'll have to come back. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you having me.